This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. I suppose that when we think about exercises that lead to sanctification, that is about growing in holiness or godliness, we think first about private prayer and Bible reading. Those are excellent, indispensable exercises. But what about public worship? On first reflection, the connection might not seem as obvious, but Scripture says a good deal about public worship and spiritual growth or growth in holiness. As a consequence, our better theologians have also made this connection, as have our churches in our confessions and catechisms. Joining us to talk about the relation between piety and public worship is Dr. W. Robert Godfrey, president of Westminster Seminary, California. He's author of An Unexpected Journey and God's Pattern for Creation and John Calvin, Pilgrim and Pastor, among other titles. These and other faculty titles are available through... The bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here with you. Well, we were talking about sanctification this year and the season on Office Hours, and we want to try to connect the act of public worship with sanctification. And that's a connection that some Christians and perhaps the listener might not immediately make. And so we want to explore in this episode why that is and then try to help people make that connection. But I thought it might be useful to start with Psalm 96 and the first 10 verses, first nine or 10 verses, do make an explicit connection between public worship and sanctification. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering, this is verse 8, and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. How does the psalmist think about, first of all, the holiness of God, and then worship, and how does he connect those two things? Well, I think this is a marvelous psalm. We could spend all our time just talking about how it relates to worship and to sanctification, because there are so many connections in these just nine verses here. But of particular interest for our subject, perhaps, is verse 9, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, or as the old translation had it, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And then the translators note that holiness there could also be translated holy attire, perhaps referring to the vestments of the priests and of the high priest as they ministered in the temple. And I think for those of us in the New Covenant, what's intriguing there is that it draws our minds to recognize how the temple of the Old Covenant is now fulfilled in the New Covenant. And whether we want to translate that word holiness or holy attire, in the New Covenant it comes to the same thing, because the holy attire of the priests in the Old Covenant symbolized and pointed to the holiness that is ours and the growing progressive holiness that is ours by the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. So it points how worship is intimately connected to holiness. Worship advances holiness, but worship also 
is grounded in holiness, the holiness of our Lord and the work that he's doing in us. Do we have to justify the assumption that he's talking about public worship here? Well, I think when, as you sort of pointed out in your reading, when you talk about bringing an offering into his courts, that is certainly public worship. Now, I think personally that worship is used in a variety of ways in the scriptures. So private devotions are a kind of worship. Small group gatherings are a kind of worship. But the scripture I believe, very clearly calls us, in addition to those things, to public worship, and indeed highlights the central importance of public worship in the Christian life. And there have been some writers in the history of the Reformed tradition who've had to actually articulate the priority of the public over the private, not in any way to diminish the importance of private worship and family worship. And in fact, we are dedicating an entire episode in this series to the connection between private worship and sanctity as well. So we don't want the listener to think that we're setting them against each other. But in our time, and particularly maybe in our culture, there is a tendency to diminish the importance and even centrality of public worship. And so some people might be surprised at the idea that we can connect public worship to sanctification. Right. And I think what happened in the history of religion in America is that after the Reformation and doctrine was reformed according to the Word of God and church government was reformed according to the Word of God and public worship was reformed according to the Word of God, there was this sense that although externals had now been purified, the heart still hadn't always been addressed in terms of all the people showing up at public worship. That was a very legitimate concern, that we not be satisfied with a kind of formalism. But the danger has been, I think there's been an overreaction, so that the assumption has been among some that the forms of worship really are not important, and that the power, the vitality of the church is to be measured by things other than public worship. And I think that's a fundamental mistake. Just this morning, I saw someone writing online about how they were disgusted with the organized church, and they were so glad that they were spiritual, but not part of organized Christianity. So that's a powerful impulse in the history of American Christianity and it only seems to be gaining strength now in our time. Right. I think one could and should make the case that what we're seeing in American Christianity right now is is a kind of repetition of a lot of what went on in the book of Judges, where each one's doing what's right in his own eyes. And when that's recorded, that is not a commendation of the people of Israel. It's a condemnation. We are not to be self-serving, self-directing, self-justifying, and that's going on too much. Americans are an autonomous and independent lot. Right which is good in civil life, or at least arguably good, but less so in the life of the church. Right. And especially problematic if we conclude that if I'm cultivating my own spirituality on my own, I really don't need public worship because it's just a kind of formal endeavor. I think that's a profoundly wrong point of view. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Let's explore that, because I think that's right at the heart of what I want to get at today. The notion that when we gather for public worship, that's only a ratification of what I have done in private, that nothing of significance really transpires there. And and I remember being told, for example, or at least it being implied to me as a college student, that the real action in the Christian life was in small groups in our campus groups, and that we only went to public worship to sort of make a good show of things, really. I don't think 
anyone would admit to that, but I had that clear impression that it was, that was for the ordinary folk, but the truly spiritual people were making their real progress in the Christian life somewhere else. I think another way of measuring that is the decline of the second public worship service on the Lord's Day, that far and wide the idea is out there that one public worship a Sunday is plenty, and there are really better uses of our time than a second public worship service to cultivate spirituality. That, too, I think is profoundly wrong. Well, we need to commune at the mall, right? Well, I mean... (laughs) Or whatever we're doing. But even if we are involved in a small group Bible study Sunday night, is that really as valuable for our sanctification as being in a second public worship service? And I would want to argue, we may not have time to do this today, but I would want to argue that it is more important to be in the public service than in small group study. Well, no, let's do that, because I can hear the listener thinking or saying, well, wait a minute, I have been in small groups where we have really worked closely with Scripture, and we have prayed, we have borne one another's burdens and encouraged one another, and I have come away refreshed and empowered and renewed, and I've sat in, you know, second services where the minister was tired, the congregation was grumpy, and I've just felt miserable. And if I have to choose between the two, I surely choose the former over the latter. So aren't you just imposing some law on me, Godfrey, that you've made up and you're imposing on us from your uh, European tradition? No, that's not what I'm doing. First of all, I don't want to deny for a moment that gathering in the small group can be profoundly profitable. I'm not speaking against that, but if we think covenantally, as the Scripture does, then it is the covenant community as a whole coming together in a worship service called by the office bearers of the covenant community, led by the minister of the covenant community, with the promise, and I, I think this is really central, that God meets with his people in a unique way in the public worship service, that his promise of presence and blessing attends the public worship service in a way that is not promised in quite the same way for small groups, and that therefore that official meeting, that covenant meeting, is that to which we are called. For example, when Hebrews says, neglect not the gathering together of yourselves, I I think that's all in temple imagery fulfilled in the new covenant as the gathering of the covenant community officially. How often did the priest make sacrifices? I don't know whether we're thinking of daily offerings or on the Sabbath. Well, I mean, the Scripture frequently talks about the morning offering and the evening offering. I would not want to use that as a justification for the number of times we worship on the Lord's Day. I think we are not under law as to the exact number of public worship services we have on the Lord's Day. But what I like to say to people is that we ought to complain to our ministers and elders that we only get two. Why aren't there three? Why aren't there four? Now, I'm being slightly facetious about that. But if God has appointed the preaching of his word as a means of grace, promised to be present in it, promised to work through it by the Holy Spirit, then we should want more of that rather than less. And I think most of those who argue against the second service don't really understand the means of grace. Isn't there a pattern, though, in Scripture? I mean, I agree with you entirely that you know, we have to be careful about what we do with the morning and evening, but there is that pattern. There's a creational pattern, which is interesting, right? Morning and evening, the first day, and so forth. There's the sacrificial pattern, and then there's the synagogue pattern, which, again, you know, one could say, well, you know, that was an ad hoc thing. But it is the circumstance in which the New Testament church gathered, that they gathered in a circumstance where the synagogue met twice every Sabbath. Well, and it is interesting that Psalm 92, the only psalm that explicitly mentions the Sabbath, says it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. To some extent, 
extent, a failure to know the Psalter also contributes to a failure to appreciate the importance and character of public worship. But I don't think we should get hung up on that question and miss the bigger point that public worship is appointed by God and accompanied with his promise to meet us there. And that should be the really crucial thing, that in his word, by his Holy Spirit, he meets with us and blesses us and sanctifies us. So let's flesh that out. How do we know from Scripture? You've already mentioned Hebrews chapter 10. Where else would you go in Scripture for the notion that it is to this public gathering that God has made promises and that we can expect the Holy Spirit to operate powerfully through the things that take place in a public worship service? Hebrews does remain the critical place to look at these things because Hebrews is the largest place in the New Testament where the meaning of the Old Testament temple is explained and we are shown how it's fulfilled. And the repeated call of Hebrews is draw near. It's interesting to look through Hebrews and see how frequently that phrase is used. And to what do we draw near? Well, it becomes explicit in Hebrews 12. We draw near to the heavenly Jerusalem. By faith right now, we are able to enter the heavenly temple in the heavenly Jerusalem to fellowship with the people of God. And that's a unique privilege and honor that is ours that I think is preeminently experienced by us in public worship. I was just thinking about Romans chapter 10 as well, 1014 and following. But how are they to call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It seems like scripture repeatedly draws us back to the public, authoritative, divinely ordained proclamation of the word. And you see that again in First and Second Timothy, the directions that Paul gives to Timothy as a young minister. You know, when he says, uh, devote yourself to the reading of scripture, that's almost certainly the public reading of of scripture in the public worship service. So there too is highlighted for us the importance of public worship in the life of the Christian community. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2, Paul reflects on the contrast between the wisdom of God, which is embodied chiefly in Jesus Christ, but also reflected in the church's gathering and in the ministry of the Word. He says something which it seems relevant here in 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Is it the case that, without judging people's hearts, that that we have fallen prey to a certain kind of naturalism when we don't or are not convinced that it's through the foolishness of preaching and the gathering in public worship that God is really operating, even though it might not be exciting and even though we might not be able immediately to see what's going on. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite phrases in the Heidelberg Catechism is, we must not be wiser than God. And that's spoken particularly in the warning against the use of images, however much we might like images or rationalize the profitable use of images. The Catechism rightly says we must not be wiser than God. And I think the same is true when it comes to the ministerial office, to the obligation of the minister to preach the Word. I remember a great series Terry Johnson did here at the seminary years ago, looking at the Book of Acts and observing that almost everything significant about the growth of the church takes place in the Book of Acts in the context of a large group prayer meeting. That's always stuck with me because, again, when I was in college, it was all about small group prayer meetings, how vital those were. And again, I'm not speaking against small group prayer meetings, but I think we really undervalue the prayers offered in public worship. Maybe it's because so many of us have trouble paying attention to those prayers, and we have to work at it. It's part of our obligation as worshipers to work at that. But those prayers are really crucial. They are the prayers of the community as a whole coming together in a place where God has promised to meet with us. 
And there are other elements of worship or expressions of the two basic elements. If we boil it down, you have word and prayer, essentially. You have the word read, the word preached, and the word administered in the sacraments. And then you have prayer, which is the response of the people, either through the minister or from the congregation itself as a whole. Yeah, that's what we've always said as Reformed people, that what worship consists of is God speaking to us and we speak to God. And there's this dialogue, this conversation, this back and forth that goes on. And each element of that has a uniqueness to to that setting of public worship. The sacraments might not seem like ways by which we are being sanctified. Most of us have only been baptized once. Some of us would say it's only possible to be baptized once. Or at least only proper to be baptized once. <laughs> And we receive the Lord's Supper maybe weekly or maybe monthly, maybe quarterly. But sometimes we're, for example, let's say we're just watching a baptism. How in the act of watching someone else be baptized is the Lord sanctifying us? How do we connect that sacramental act with our own personal sanctification. Well, as the Westminster Standards say, since I've quoted Heidelberg once in a great phrase in the Westminster Standards, we need to improve our baptism. And what that meant there was we need to think about our baptism, remember that we are a baptized people, and that that baptism is the mark of God's covenant upon us. And when we see someone else being baptized, it is an occasion to remember and believe that we have been marked by God, that we have been made part by His grace of the covenant community, and to rejoice in that new beginning that was ours at some point in our own personal history. Preaching is so important because it's foolish according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the hearts and minds of God. People And so the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. It's a little easier to understand how the Lord is sanctifying us in the Lord's Supper when we're receiving that. But sometimes we're tempted to think about the Supper purely as an act of remembering, and it certainly involves that, and that's a major part of the sacrament. But what is it about the Lord's Supper that distinguishes it from baptism, and how does the Lord operate through that sacramental act to sanctify us? Well, there again, the crucial thing, it seems to me, about the Lord's Supper is the promise of God to meet us there, the promise of Jesus to meet us there, not only with all his saving benefits accrued for us in the offering of his body and blood on the cross, but that he himself is there to meet with us and therefore to encourage us, to strengthen us, to forgive us, to bless us, and to build us up in the faith, and to draw us back to the very heart of things, which is, without me, you can do nothing. The Lord's Supper is a wonderful concentration point of the service to say, all that I have comes from Jesus, both in the beginning of my Christian life, but also in the continuation of my Christian life. You put me in mind of Belgic Confession, Article 35, and as part of that 
article, it says, But to maintain the spiritual and heavenly life that belongs to believers, he has sent a living bread that came down from heaven, namely Jesus Christ, who nourishes and maintains the spiritual life of believers when eaten, that is, when appropriated and received spiritually by faith. Help us connect now eating Christ by faith. And in fact, this same article goes on to use some very strong language about how it is that we are fed by Christ and our spiritual growth. You know, what's being stressed there is that from our side, our connection with Christ is always faith. Faith that looks away from ourselves, looks away from our accomplishment, and looks by the power of the Holy Spirit to Christ as the only one who can come to us, help us, minister to us. And so faith looks beyond what eyes can see. Eyes can see bread and wine that is not all impressive or, from the world's point of view, important. That's why the church has always been so tempted to dress it up in some way that makes it look grander. But that simple bread and wine is a call for faith to remember what Christ has promised to do when we are obedient to him, when we follow him in administering the sacrament. And the Spirit is operating through that communion. Right. He has promised that the Spirit will operate through that sacramental experience. And strengthening our union with Christ and forming us more and more to Christ so that something wonderful really transpires. And something that's hard to account for in ordinary language is taking place when we meet with God in public worship, in prayer, in the preaching of the Word, and in the use of the sacraments. Right. It's one of the ways God uses so that the life of Christ more and more lives in us. And that's why it's so surrounded by the language of life, his living body, his living blood, his living presence, his living spirit. All those elements of life are what are being talked about. It's why Calvin used to like to say, we more and more become flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. I don't know what you make of this, but I've often been impressed with Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 11 as he's talking about how people should conduct themselves in public worship and what some people regard as difficult language in the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 10 says, That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And the context here is public worship. And I think it's interesting that Paul just assumes that we understand what he means, and he seems to take it for granted that when we're gathered in public worship, that angels are present. Ought we to think that way? And what does that say about the sanctity of worship? Obviously, the Greek word angeloi can sometimes mean messengers. So it may be referring to the preacher, but I think it's more likely it's referring to angelic spirits. And it's part and parcel of that idea. We are really entering the heavenly Jerusalem, where there are myriads of angels as well as the righteous souls of God's people. So it's interesting that Calvinism is so often accused of a kind of bare, grim, cold, cold and sterile. Plastic kind of approach to worship. And in fact, it's very mystical. In the proper sense. In the proper sense, yeah. That there's something far beyond what can be seen that goes on. And so when God's people are gathered in public worship, whether the first service or the second service, and whether it's at any given moment particularly thrilling or whether endorphins are being released in our brains or not, uh, nevertheless, it is a holy convocation at which God is present and we are before the face of the living God. And we never know exactly how the Spirit's working in different hearts. He doesn't work the same in every heart every week. So just because you're having a thrilling experience doesn't necessarily mean that you are, by virtue of that experience, being sanctified. Right. 
And it doesn't mean that if you're not having that same experience, that you're not being sanctified. Exactly. A very modest sermon that doesn't seem all that impressive, nonetheless, may really be speaking either today to your heart or planting a seed that will bear fruit in the future. Our forefathers in the 16th and 17th centuries, in some way, seem to have a clearer grasp of the holiness of God. And I'm not saying that it wasn't a golden age, and I'm not saying we necessarily need to go back, but we can learn a little bit about how to think about these things from them. Why was it easier for them, in some respects, to think of the holiness of God? And what are we missing? And I'm thinking relative to public worship. You know, in part, they lived in a hierarchical society. They knew that most of them had no right to expect ever to be able to go into the presence of the king. And if they did, they would have been so sort of terrified, they would hardly have been able to speak. We live in this radically democratic society where our operating assumption is, I'm just as good as anybody else. And we transfer that to God. And especially... I think that there's a subtle temptation. We'd never really put it this way. But in a society where so many people ignore God, isn't God really lucky to have us? I mean, you know, he ought to be grateful. Well, sometimes it is put that way, that God is blessed by— You've got to stop moving in those circles. (laughs) (laughs) I have heard it said, and I've read it, that God is blessed to have you here. That's really appalling. Can I make one more brief point, sort of a pet peeve of mine, is, you know, another significant part of public worship is the benediction. At the end, the minister speaking for God pronounces a blessing on the people of God. And what a wonderful way to leave, to go out into the world, to go out to serve with this promise that the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God goes with you. And that pronouncement properly is, again, only appropriate in that official gathering of the covenant community when the minister from his office to which he's been called speaks to God's people and lays that blessing on them. Just like the sacraments. Exactly, or like the sermon. I mean— the benediction isn't a sacrament, but it is an official act. It is. It's like a mini-sermon. You know, this is the truth of God's Word to you who believe. His love is for you, His grace is for you, His mercy is for you. I mean, that's an idea that's difficult for us to grasp, I think, that there are such things as official declarations that because they come from an office, not from a person, but from an office, have a different character. And they come with the full authority of God's promise. This is God's promise to his people. And if you go out in the week and don't feel the love of God, it doesn't change the fact that God still loves you. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Maybe we have difficulty because we've gotten so cynical about our public officials that we're used to them misleading us so that, you know, as we do with other things, maybe we transfer that cynicism a little bit to our minister, who is an official and who is an ordained servant of God, authorized to speak certain words that we are, insofar as they are true to Scripture, meant to accept as if they came from God himself. And it's a truth for ministers as well as for worshipers that we can fall into just going through the forms, whether it's a benediction or administration of the sacrament, whatever. We all have to work that those forms are received and expressed in faith by us. What happens to us when we omit public worship, when we absent ourselves from the twice-weekly gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day? Well, I think it's like somebody who 
isn't eating regularly, the body eventually weakens. And I think the same is true spiritually. I've said to students, I, you know, I think we've all as preachers had the feeling, you know, I preach week in and week out and people forget sometimes in the one week, sometimes within a month or a year, what I preached on, does it all really matter? And I say it's kind of parallel to eating. We eat three meals a day. We don't always remember exactly what we ate every day, but we do know if we hadn't had those meals, our bodies would be thinner. But the main point I'm trying to make, all, the analogies are never perfect. Uh, the main point I'm trying to make is our bodies would be weaker. Sometimes I've used the analogy of atrophy. But if you just sit and if you don't move and if you don't exercise, not that I'm thinking of anyone in particular. He's staring at me, folks. That, you know, those muscles become less useful and eventually they have to pick you up and carry you out of the house in order to get you from one place to another. And that's why the catechism says that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Faith needs to be exercised and prayer is one way we exercise it, but careful attendance on the means of grace is another way. So getting up on Sunday morning and overcoming all the obstacles and challenges of getting a family to Sunday morning worship is an act of faith. Absolutely. It might not seem that way, right, when you're trying to find Susie's dress. I just washed it. Where did you put it? I'm going through all of those sorts of mini crises every Sunday morning. Absolutely. And, and of course, this is why I think Reformed Christianity has so rightly said, you know, not only has God called us to public worship, but God has given us a day for public worship. So we're not free to choose whether we worship or not. We're not free to choose what day we worship on. God has appointed Sunday as the Christian Sabbath, and we are called to worship on that day with his people. As briefly as you can for the listener who is doubting. I know customarily he's thinking we meet on Sundays, but the Sabbath is really something that was associated with Moses. And we're in the New Covenant. And Godfrey keeps talking about the Sabbath. And Clark keeps talking about the Sabbath. I don't know. I, I, I'm, that makes me nervous. Well, the first thing to be said about that is that it was not Moses who invented the Sabbath. It was God at creation who invented the Sabbath. I think it's true. If you think of Sabbath only in relation to Moses, it goes away. But if you think about it in relation to creation, it doesn't go away. And recreation. And recreation, because in uh, Revelation 1 verse 10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, all those people who claim to read the New Testament and say the New Testament says all days are alike, they stumble over Revelation 1 verse 10. Because for John, as the apostle, there is a day in the new covenant that belongs uniquely to the Lord. And uh, the only way to make sense of that is Sunday, the day of the Lord's resurrection. We don't have time to go into all of that. And he was raised on the first day of the week. He was. If our Lord wanted to set aside the first day of the week, and if he wanted to move the authorized day for public worship from the last day to the first day, he couldn't have done it in any more significant way than by rising from the dead or being raised from the dead on the first day of the week. And we see that is the way the apostles interpret it, because the few references we have to the day on which the church was worshiping, it's on the first day of the week. The entire Israelite calendar was structured by redemption, and the Christian calendar is structured by redemption. There are analogies. It's not a purely mosaic thing. It's a creational thing, and it's a recreational thing. Right. And I think the blessing of following those divine ordinances is so clear in the history of the church, and that where people have failed to keep the Sabbath day holy, the church has been weakened, families have been weakened, individual faith has been weakened. Earlier, you mentioned a pastor. We were talking about a pastor who might be discouraged. It doesn't seem like anything happened last Sunday. No, you know, Nobody came down the aisle. The anxious bench was empty. Encourage the pastor who's listening that, yes, the Lord did work, even though you didn't see it or feel it last Sunday. 
Well, you know, I, I think of the statement of Luther, we must attend on even the most insignificant sermon because we never know when the Holy Spirit will do his work. Now, let me also say to pastors, that is not an encouragement to prepare insignificant sermons. The Lord has not promised to bless greatly lousy preaching. Preachers need to work hard knowing that they have to give account for how they spent their time and how they worked at preparing to bless God's people. But just like the mother who has to make dinner every night and gets sometimes kind of tired of it, feels underappreciated, doesn't see all the fruit of it, a pastor has to live by faith. And the faith by which he lives says that the preaching of the word is what breeds faith. Where does true faith come from? The Heidelberg Catechism asks, and it rightly answers, true faith has worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirmed unto us by the Holy Sacraments. And Abraham Kuyper reflected on that 65th question of Heidelberg Catechism and said, well, sometimes it seems faith comes from a lot of other things, through books or through friends or through family. And he says, that's all true. We don't have to deny that. But why are there Christian books? Why are there Christian families? Why are there Christian friends? Because somebody sometime in the history of the church was a faithful preacher. And we don't always see the effect of that, but that's the way God works. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.